Hey y'all, Topher here. Um, we actually recorded this episode last Wednesday or Thursday, right after the death of Mikhail Gorbachev. We were supposed to release it last week, but we didn't. Sorry about that, but it's here now. Perhaps a little behind, but here nonetheless. Oh, and shout out to one of my all-time favorite bands, L7. I played a snippet of their song Dispatch from Mar-a-Lago in this episode. They are bitchin', and you should check them out uh, if you haven't already. They've been around for a long time now. Anyway, thanks for listening, and here's the show. Hello, and welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence. You know me, I'm Topher M. Ford, and today is a very special day. And it's not just special because my doctor upped my ADHD medication dosage. Uh, it's also a special day because every day is special when I have my co-host, Brandon Givens, with me. Brandon, uh, you make things special. How are you? Oh, that's kind of sweet. I think I'm even blushing a little bit. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Doing okay. We um, had a, a couple days off because it was uh, Constitution Day yesterday here in Kazakhstan. And um, but I, I did hear that the president has sent word for the bomb shelters to be inspected to make sure that they are up to snuff. Uh, uh, I'm sure uh, that's just a, a formality. Yeah. There's, yeah, no, yeah. there's no reason to worry yeah well we've got a couple of weeks of flour and rice just in case but you know yeah we'll see yeah all right well we're gonna so we were gonna for the today's episode we felt uh, compelled to revisit mar-a-lago um i didn't intend to like spend a lot of time on this story but it keeps getting crazier um <laughs> But before we do that, we also, it's important for us to, uh, I think, to discuss another bit of news that happened most recently, and that was that uh, the the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, um, big figure in history, Titanic historical figure, I guess you'd say. Uh, I and, think history is going to look a lot more kindly on him than, he, than he's looked up on now. Well, why don't you go ahead? Can you tell us? You've got a bit here prepared about him. Uh, can yeah, you go through around. that for us? Yeah, I'll give you a, a biography of uh, Gorbachev. Um, Gorbachev was born to a farming family in rural Russia. One of his grandfathers joined and helped run a collective farm. Uh, is and he is ninety-one when he died, or ninety? I've seen ninety-two also. So that was. A long time ago. Yeah, he was born in like 1930 or something. And yeah, it was like bef he was born before World War II. Uh, in fact, he um, lived through the um, Holomador. And um, yeah, he was born in 31. Yeah, he lived through the Holomador and, you know, the great period of starvation. Right. And he had family die. Um, during the Stalin purges, um, both of his grandfathers were arrested. Uh, they were released, 
Um, during World War II, his father joined the Red Army, and his uh, region was occupied by the Germans for about five months. And, and during the war, his elementary school years, well, he didn't go to school. Uh, but after the war, he, he did go to school and um, was pretty good at it. He was a pretty good student and an avid reader. Uh, he joined the Communist Youth League and um, became a leader of that. They elected their leaders. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people, yeah, don't understand exactly how the the Communist Party works, but within itself, it can be quite democratic. It obsesses over it, <laughs> but <laughs> but there's an in club and an out club, right? But, all right. So um, he was accepted to a high school, uh, but it was you know like ten twelve miles away from home. And he stayed at like a dorm or something. Um, that's my understanding. It might have been, you know, but he didn't live at home at that point. Uh, but he did walk home on the weekends uh, to work and visit his family. And uh, he was a pretty good farm worker. And in fact, he and his dad harvested so much grain, they got medals for it. Uh, he was awarded the Order of the Red Banner of Labor. And so, yeah, he was, he was, very, he was uh, very good at um, driving a combine. So good for him. He's, uh, you know, a, a poor, poor guy from rural Russia, family of farmers. You know, some of them died in what would be kind of like their Great Depression, uh, but uh, perhaps worse. And but at 19, he went he got accepted to a law school, the most prestigious law school in Moscow and became a candidate member of the Communist Party. While at university, he developed a disdain for anti-Semitism and terror politics. Oh, that's that's a good uh, uh, development. Yeah, well, not everybody <laughs> felt that way. <laughs> well, yeah, he was. Um, I think in some ways he might have been. You know, he he saw kind of the positives of the system. Like his poor guy grew up. You know, people starving to death. But then as he's getting older, he's seeing the country improve, you know, like the farms developing and he go, he gets educated and he gets to go to school. And that was not, would have not been possible for his grandparents, you know, under the old system. There wasn't social mode. Under, under Stalin. No, no, no. Stalin is how it happened. It happened to him under Stalin. Um, well, that's what the, I mean. Yeah. That. Oh, you, you're saying like the improvements happened under Stalin? Yeah, a lot of them did. Yeah, and um, yeah, in the fifties, like the economic improvements. Now, the freedom freedoms didn't quite happen, but a lot of the economic um, did. And so, he seems to have this sort of like, well, the system of communism, as far as the economics, isn't all that awful. But Stalin, ugh, don't much care for him. And he didn't much care for, again, the terror politics. And since he was, uh, like, in the Communist Youth League, at university, they put him in charge of, like, uh, it was kind of like the political officer in the dorm. So he was supposed to watch people and rat them out. Um, but everybody knew that he wouldn't, and he apparently didn't. And he was put in charge, like, the, the communists of the city wanted... They were having an election that the general people could vote for, and they're like, no, this is a serious election, and we want to show how serious we are about having people vote. Um, and so they wanted a 100% turnout. So for propaganda reasons, 
And he was in, you know, part of his job was encouraging people to get out and vote. And he found that, well, people are doing it because they're scared. They don't want to. They're, they're scared. And he didn't much like that. Um, he, anyway, he, gets, he graduates and work, he gets sent back to his home region, um, works at like what we'd probably call something like the state attorney general's office. Uh, and he's a lawyer, but he didn't really like it. So he asked for a transfer, and he became the like local director of the Communist Youth League. And he works his way up in the organization, and his big thing is appointing women. And eventually, I mean, he uh, – yeah, so this is like uh, 60s. He, he keeps getting promoted. Uh, he does well at his jobs, whatever they are, Go, you know, head of agriculture and then head of foreign affairs. Then he ends up in the – a standing committee and the secretary, you know, big guy. So good job. I mean, so far, so he sounds uh, pretty decent, like a pretty decent guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he um, he was uh, all the way through. He was very big on reformer reforming, and by reforming, he meant like loosening up the bureaucracy and giving people kind of like basic rights and encouraging equality in general. Um. When Stalin died, he was, he was I don't know that he was doing backflips, but um, he considered Stalin a traitor. You know, like he, he really embraced Khrushchev, you know, like, so after Stalin, he right. got Khrushchev, and Khrushchev is like, yeah, Stalin was bad. He had a cult of personality that was awful. And, you know, Gorbachev's like, yeah, Stalin was a traitor to Marxist Leninist ideals. So, yeah, he, did, he didn't much care for that. Right. Um, and just like back to the point I was making before, just like the bureaucratic system, it's his grandparents would have never had the opportunity to education, but then he did, which is the same thing like our parents and grandparents experienced in the U.S. You know, like, oh, my grandparents, I worked on the farm and they didn't have anything. And then, but I was able to go to school, the Pell Grant and the GI Bill and, you know, go get educated. And it's like, well, there was a generation of Soviets that experienced something similar. In 85, he was made general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Um, now, also in this time, uh, or a bit before, he's one of the few people that's getting to travel abroad. And one of the things that made a, uh, a strong impression upon him was how the, um, the Westerners would criticize their leaders. And he was like, okay, well, maybe, maybe this is a good thing. And of course, it ends up kind of being his downfall, but. But you could see, I could see how he would think, oh, this is pretty cool after like living and growing up under Stalin, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, having um, his uh, grandmother said she was tortured um, before being released and. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, well, there's a good part of this system that does actually try to be helping but then there's also this dark side that's that's pretty awful. And not being able to criticize the officials allowed for corruption. And so he, he didn't much I'm care. I'm glad they that. fixed that. <laughs> yeah. And they got rid of corruption in the Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well um, so with that in mind with corruption, he he said once he you know becomes the big guy, he's like, all right, this is what we need to do. We need to restructure the system. And that's like rebuild this perestroika. And we need more transparency. That's glasnost. So 
his restructuring was um, to try to allow more local decision making. He, I mean, he tinkered a bit with the idea of going. He he wanted to free the markets up a little bit, but he didn't want to get rid of central planning. And it's hard to tell what he really thought would be best versus what he thought he could accomplish. Because those those can often be two very different things. It's like um, uh, Obama with the Affordable Care Act. I want single payer. (laughs) He might have wanted single payer or he might have wanted, you know, one singular insurance system. But (laughs) he got the um, Affordable Care Act and what that entails because that's what could be accomplished. Um, but one of the things he did do was he opened up free speech. So people could openly criticize the government. The press opened up a lot. He um, unrestricted the Orthodox Church, and he allowed more freedom of religion. And uh, he also started as one of the market reforms. They said, okay, well, some of the salaries, especially with agriculture, are going to be linked to outputs, and farms can sell about 30% of what they produce on an open market. But he, he's constantly getting stuck between the, a group that want greater reforms, which seemed to be led by Yeltsin. And Yeltsin's big thing was just criticize whatever he did. You know, like whatever that he That sounds did. familiar. Yeah. It's just um, he was constantly just trying to gum up the works, whatever reforms he would suggest. Ah, no, no, no. I don't want that. I want more. And then there are the, you know, the people that wanted to go back to the good old days back when we had a strong man that knew how to make people be quiet and shut up and do what they're told. Um, when countries like Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary, when they held elections and did not elect communists, he did not intervene. He's like, I, you know, we're, we're the, well, he also apparently didn't think that they would completely abandon socialism or uh, their, somewhat fealty to the Soviet Union, that they might still have affection for the Soviet Union. So that might have played in why he didn't intervene. But in general, he was, eh, you know, we he saw military and violence as, as not so great. And he's the one that ends up ending the Afghan war, too. Uh, he never really supported it. He kind of inherited it and eventually ended it. He didn't stand in the way of German reunification. All right, and here's the big thing that we're, I think people, when they look back and see what he was trying to accomplish, uh, he's kind of underrated in history. He wanted to separate the Communist Party from the state apparatus. So, you know, like Soviet unions, this one-party state, and it's basically, you know, you you have all these different levels of government, and um, they call them Soviets, which is kind of like a Congress. like right. The Soviet Union would probably be better translated as Congressional Union, and uh, but he wanted he wanted to make, get rid of the the party's direct control of the state, so he created something called the Congress of the People's Deputies, and um, people can run. Um, you know that was kind of open. People could run for that office. You know, it was Congress, and they did not have to be communists. And then those people would elect the president, which was something that our founding fathers discussed, having like Congress elect the president. Right. Um, And so he was elected president by them. So he was the first and last president of the Soviet Union. (laughs) 
<laughs> it lasted about one year. All right, so um, he's doing that, and it pretty much you know takes the teeth out of the Communist Party um, because, well, now they don't really control all of the policymaking. And his administration, they suggested some economic reforms called the 500-day plan, and they would have moved the country very much towards a, a market economy. And it's probably the one thing Yeltsin kind of approved of that he came up with. Well, the Russian Soviet, which, you know, like the Russian Congress, you have to remember the Soviet Union was a union of like Russia, Kazakhstan, Georgia, um, Latvia. I mean, I'm not going to name them all. But right. But the Soviet Union wasn't, it was more than just Russia. Correct. And so the Russian Soviet, Yeltsin was the president of that. So maybe you could think of it as the, the governor of the state, but they call him president. And um, they, they, they said, yeah, 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 we want this 500-day plan. But the Supreme Soviet resisted it. They're like, no, 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 we don't know. We don't know if this should go everywhere. So then Yeltsin declared that the Russian Soviet was supreme to the laws of the Soviet Union. So basically, it would be like if, um, you know, like Texas did say something like, oh, well, Texan laws are superior to federal laws, which, you know, was a big argument in, you know, the early U.S., like which law trumps which. Um, so uh, it wasn't a declaration of independence exactly, but kind of. <laughs> and, but it was, it was a major power play on Yeltsin's part. All right, so Lithuania, it passed some pro-independence reforms, and Gorbachev did send in troops to patrol with police, and some protesters ended up getting killed. Uh, and so he ends up being attacked by both sides. The reformers are like, why did you even send troops? And the hardliners are like, why didn't you send more troops? You right. know, you're just a pushover. And you know, So after that, you're getting more and more talk from the different um, Soviets about breaking apart. So Gorbachev, he's, he tries to salvage the Soviet Union with a rewritten constitution. He's like, look, you know, I've made this democrat, this way of moving towards democracy. Let's let, let's let's do that. Let's move toward this sort of more open democratic system together. There were good things about the Soviet system. You know, we have a lot a, a, a functioning bureaucracy in place, court system, blah dee da. Let's you know, keep what we got going. Um, but, and with that in mind, before that he could meet with um, the leaders of the other Soviets, uh, there was an attempted coup. So the, the August pooch. So August 1991, a group of hardliners, they tried to remove him and they were going to bring back the good old days. Uh, but the pooch right. failed. Uh, and I, I, rem I remember that when we, when we went over... Uh, we did this same treatment for Putin. We talked a little bit about this. Yeah. And um, largely it was Yeltsin who did help stop it. You know, he's barricaded himself and like, no, Russia's its own thing. Stop it. Russia's not going to be part of the Soviet Union anymore. Uh, kind of a nationalist thing. All right. So in the aftermath, Gorbachev, he resigns as general secretary and he called on the Central Committee to dissolve. And the, in August uh, 29th, 1991, the Supreme Soviet suspended itself, effectively ending the Communist Party 
uh, activity in the Soviet Union. Um, the, I think around November, Yeltsin even bans the Communist Party within Russia. So uh, the old Soviet Union is now getting effectively free of Communist Party domination. Gorbachev still trying to salvage the Soviet Union um, as like, you know, a union, a tight confederation, loose federation, something. Uh, but different regions had different ideas about what they wanted. Uh, but very quickly, those ideas go to just straight independence because the nationalists will end up winning. So Ukraine voted right. for independence. Uh, Kazakhstan ends up becoming independent. Interestingly enough, Kazakhstan and um, Kyrgyzstan were the most, at that point, the most interested in remaining part of the Soviet Union. Um, but in the end, they they broke away. Um, Yeltsin, you know, kind of undermined any of Gorbachev's efforts, uh, insisting more on confederation. And the leaders of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine created the CIS, Commonwealth of Independent States. And at that point, that effectively ended any, any hope for the Soviet Union. And then December 26, the uh, Soviet of the Republics, you know, that's the, the most Soviet Soviet of all. <laughs> uh, it, it voted itself out of existence and thus the Soviet Union ceased to exist. So that would be like if Congress voted to vote itself out of existence, like, okay, right. the government shall disappear, and each state is now independent. Um, now, after, after his time as office, he you know, spent a lot of time raising money, created his own nonprofit, which was about studying uh, his legacy, essentially. And he also has one that's about green, uh, green business initiatives, which is kind of interesting. And uh, he spent a lot of time supporting social democratic movements. And he'll chime in, or would, I mean, he's dead now, but he would chime in on politics. He liked Putin at first, um, but then as time went on, it was like, oh, he got really mad when he didn't leave office. You know, like Putin ran right. two terms, and then uh, Medvedev came in, and when Putin ran again, uh, Gorbachev. So, uh, to Gorbachev, if he's to be remembered for for anything, it should be uh, he brought freedom of religion to Russia. He brought free speech, even though the newspapers and everyone attacked him. And you know, as soon as he's like, okay, you're free to talk. They're like, ah, we don't like you. And he eliminated the one-party system in Russia and attempted to create a, you know, like free democracy. Yeah. It's a bummer that that one-party thing and the free democracy thing didn't last very long. Yeah. And in some sense, one could argue, like, America uh, screwed the pooch because he was always going to Reagan and, like, look, we want to end, we want to, like, seriously cut down our nuclear weapons. And Reagan's like, I can't, I can't really go along too much with that. You know, my, the, the hardliners in my party won't let that happen. And... 
So it was always like uh, Gorbachev was constantly trying to negotiate better economic terms and liberalize the country. Right. And he's, but at that time, the Reagan's administration was leaning really hard into that. They were milking the last drops of that anti-communist sentiment that they could. And so I imagine that that made things more difficult in trying to deal with, uh, but yeah, so the sort of this party politics ruined it. And also as the Soviet Union was like falling apart, here you've got this leader that's actively like he is allowing, like he does have free speech. He is like crippling the Communist Party. You would think that the Americans would love him, uh, but it's falling apart. Like this whole thing is kind of falling apart and oh no, we might end up with a bunch of different countries or he might get taken out in a coup because of economic instability. Um, Another strong man could come in. It was a little delayed, but that happened. And he asked for loans um, from the West. He was like, hey, you know, like our economy's in trouble. We're trying to modernize, but there are going to be some economic hiccups. We need some help. And the U.S. was like, ah, well, we won the Cold War. Sucks to be you. Um, and in some ways, I think we're we're seeing the results of that. Of course, I mean, it's impossible to know. Like, had we helped Gorbachev and uh, the Soviet Union transition to uh, liberal democracy, uh, we don't know what would have happened. But right. Because that still wouldn't have gotten rid of the, like, the, you know, the people who would become the oligarchs, all the the rich crime bosses who, you know, came in and bought up all of the... I don't know about that, because under Gorbachev, that level of, um, that level of, for quote-unquote, free market might not have happened. I mean, that was his thing, like, they wanted to go to a market... Of all of the state's assets on, for pennies on the dollar. Right, and to create monopolies, which are not really you know, good for a free market. That's not a, yeah, a monopoly isn't, uh, a privately owned monopoly probably isn't any better, maybe even a little worse than a, a state-owned monopoly. Yeah, uh, that's why you had like, um, was, uh, railroads in the West, and you're a farmer, you're growing wheat, and but you only have one option to get it to Chicago. It's the one railroad. Right. And, and yeah, they're not going to charge you like, oh, it costs them 10 cents a kilo to ship it. They're not going to charge you 11 cents or 12 cents and consider the one, one, 10 to 20% a fair profit. They're going to charge you whatever you you can pay. Yeah, it's a <laughs> yeah. Uh, situation. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so. Yeah. One of the things I was curious about, um, um, you, you didn't mention glasnost. And I oh, glasnost. That That's transparency. That was transparency. Tra- and, okay. Um, I just remember that term as, because I grew up, I was, you know, like a, in 1991, I was, I don't know, 12, 13. And I remember that, you know, like this whole thing of Gorbachev. Gorbachev was in the news constantly. He was constantly being... Uh, uh, impersonated on Saturday Night Live and other yeah. shows with his trademark birth uh, birthmark on his forehead. And one of the things that's resurfaced since he's died is the 
Gorbachev's Pizza Hut commercial because uh, <laughs> I mean Dick Gorbachev was kind of responsible for bringing like Western business and culture into, or at least that's the impression that I've gotten is that you know he opened the door for Pizza Hut and McDonald's and uh, things like that. Oh, I definitely encourage it. Yeah, there. But they had so this is. Uh, a 1997 Pizza Hut commercial that he was in um, is making the rounds again, where you've got people sitting around eating a pizza in Russia, and Gorbachev's in the background quietly eating his pizza. and It's like a family, and they're arguing politics, and the younger guy in the family is like saying, he's brought us freedom. And the other, the older guy is like, he brought us economic problems, like, <laughs> but he brought yeah. us opportunity. And the other guy's like, he brought us political instability. And then uh, somebody says, he brought us pizza hut. And then everybody's like, yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> and it makes the whole family <laughs> like agree and make peace. <laughs> Uh, that probably is a that's a very apropos commercial <laughs> yeah yeah and uh and it's funny too now because pizza hut is on its way out of russia because of <laughs> Putin's invasion of ukraine there uh, from what i've been reading they are working on selling off all of their franchise property to local owners to be rebranded kind of like mcdonald's was because they're like, we can't be here anymore. <laughs> so the, the circle of life, huh? Was that like one generation, two generations that took for Putin uh, to That's a good question. I would say one. Yeah. Yeah. One and a half. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And yeah. Well, I mean, that's Gorbachev. He's like, my legacy is dead. I mean, that's like bless his heart. Um you know, everything he, you know, like you were saying, oh, well, good thing the one-party system has got, you know, like, well, that's back to a one-party system. Right. But without to... the benefits of socialism. <laughs> right. <laughs> he is like, uh, uh, and, um, the press is no longer free. Um, right. Oh, so, yeah. It's... I don't know if, does Moscow, does Russia have free health care? Yeah, it's largely covered. Um uh, basic. I mean, yeah, you can go to the hospital and you're not going to go broke, but at the same time, the quality of care may not be all that great. Uh, the, uh, university too. I mean, that's generally expected. That, but how, how a lot of a lot of countries that do the uh, universities tuition being covered is the program might only have so many seats. So they're like, oh, well, yeah, if you pass the test to go to law school, then, yes, you can go to law school and it's covered. Um, but we only accept 20 a year. And then they pick the top 20. Um, and so in a lot of the world, now, there are also private right, schools. I was going to say, I imagine that there so, are private schools that come in to fill in that. It reminds me. I'm, but if I'm you, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, so in most of the world, going to public school means you are the cream of the crop. Oh. Like, oh, you got into public university, so you're really smart. And going to the private school means you really weren't that good of a student, so you had to pay for your education. Well, that's and... an interesting twist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's our, yeah. Thanks, you, Brent. Thanks. Thanks, you, Brandon. Thank you, Brandon, for 
going over Gorbachev for us. Um, interesting guy. Uh, yeah. And so let's come back to this story that I didn't intend to come back to. Uh, and that is uh, Trump's FBI issues, what I am calling a dispatch from Mar-a-Lago, which is a great L7 song. As we all know, uh, on August 8th, the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago looking for uh, government documents that the president took with him when he left the White House that he should not have taken. And since then, you know, it's been a hellstorm of uh, reactions. And I mean, it's just a crazy thing. It's unprecedented for the U.S. government, for the FBI to raid a former president's home. Um, yeah, so anyway, we've learned more information since then. We know a little bit more about the contents of the boxes that the FBI took. I found um, what looks to be a pretty good uh, rundown of all the uh, information connected to what was found in the boxes. It's at a website called emptywheel.net. And uh, here, I'm going to read from this uh, article from this website. Quote, as I predicted, there is a series of paragraphs that lay out the statutory authorities implicated. This tells us how sensitive the documents in question are. It does not list the Atomic Energy Act. So, that seems to say at least hint that uh, there's not any actual nuclear uh, documents in there. Don't know that for sure, but the Atomic Energy Act is not listed as one of the, uh, you know, acts that uh, one of the laws that Trump broke ah. in the affidavit. So, um it does have paragraphs that define these are the statutes that are mentioned in the affidavit. Uh, the Espionage Act, uh, Executive Order 13526, the Executive Order Governing Classified Information, Confidential, Secret, and Top Secret Classifications. Yeah, so Executive Order 13526 was enacted in 2009 by President Obama. Confidential secret and top secret classifications, secure compartmented information, uh, special intelligence, which is SIGINT. And this is from the article. He says special intelligence is SIGINT. My understanding is that SIGINT is yeah. signals intelligence, which would be, you know, like uh, intercepted messages from foreign agents. So um, HCS, which refers to... And, which refers to clandestine human spying FISA, which you know, that's the secret courts that grant all of those uh, secret warrants and wiretaps. Uh, also the classification, no foreign, which is material, not permissible to share with foreign governments. Uh, and then there's originator controlled, meaning whoever created it controls it. 
need to know documents. Um, uh, he also listed, these are some of the charges. Or no, I'm sorry. God, my document does not, it's all messed up here. Um, 32 CFR parts 2001 and 2003, which describes the storage requirements for classified information. So, you know, he had them apparently just in a, a side room somewhere that anyone could have walked into at any time. Um, he's also uh, they, being charged with obstruction, uh, willfully removing information, the Presidential Records Act, the Federal Records Act. Um, and then this is what the website says was found in the box. Uh, 67 confidential documents, 92 secret documents, 25 top secret documents, and then others marked HCS, FISA, ORCON, NOFORN, and SI. And then, of course, there are some documents with Trump's handwritten notes. Um, and if you remember, it seems like most of this, like the search for this information started with the National Archive uh, looking for stuff that they knew or that Nerds! Should be there. a lot of that being. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, like since this came out uh, and obviously they can't say, the FBI can't say this is exactly what we found because you know it's top secret stuff a lot of people have been making wild speculations um i saw like there were headlines for a few days about a, an ex-fbi officer investigator who went on to cnn and said maybe it's got a list of all the cia officers out in the world maybe it's got maybe it's got secrets. aliens uh maybe <laughs> yeah i mean and i well see you do like you know, I mean, that's okay. That's okay that's, on a podcast. Well, come on, CNN. What are you doing? Well, that's, that was the thing that got me is like, okay, this person you have, he's got some inside knowledge in general, but he doesn't have any specific knowledge about this case. And he's going on there and he says, you know, like he just says some stuff. Maybe he said it, you know, like emphatically, maybe he says it in passing, but it turns into a million headlines and that every other news organization prints this story. Are there CIA? Was there a list of CIA officers in there? (laughs) It's like, maybe there was a list of every time president Trump took a dookie. We don't know, (laughs) you know? So that was frustrating. Um, Now some, uh, they, the DOJ did release, this was in, um, court documents that were released to the public, some photos of document cover sheets that showed top secret on them. Uh, there was one photo of a bunch of different top secret documents kind of spread out over the uh, tasteless, gaudy rug at Mar-a-Lago. Um, the, and it's getting into, it's getting more interesting because the DOJ is also looking into the possibility of obstruction of justice the DOJ stated that it, quote, developed evidence that government records were likely concealed and removed from the storage room and that efforts were likely taken to obstruct. So they're, they're talking now that about the likelihood that Donald Trump's lawyers 
after the first time that they met and handed over uh, boxes of documents to the FBI, that they knew that there was more stuff and they took extra efforts to hide that stuff. So, um, yeah, case <laughs> keeps getting in more uh, interesting. Uh, another thing, many of the documents that are currently under re review are so sensitive that the FBI counterintelligence officers and staff who are reviewing them required extra security clearance before they could actually look at them. <laughs> so yeah. we're talking well, about that's, that's a tactic. stuff here. Commit a crime involving papers so sensitive you could never have a jury of your peers able to hear it to convict you. <laughs> I mean that's that is a that is a twist. <laughs> that's a complication. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Um and then Trump um you know he he's said lots of different very different things since this happened, which is, you know, his kind of his MO. Just the first thing that pops into his head, he uh I was gonna say tweets it, but he truth socials it. Which, by the way, his social media, uh, the app for his social media site was removed from the Google Play Store because of a lack of uh, moderation. Do you mean Donald Trump's going to be involved in a failed business? Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, he, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, but since then... Um, he, you know, he said uh, there were no secret documents. Um, and then he said, wait, those are mine. And now, and then the most recent thing was he said he was demanding uh, via social media, by the way, because I guess he doesn't understand how <laughs> lawyers work, even though he's had so many. Uh, maybe that's why he's having trouble finding them now. But he demanded via social media that a special master be appointed to review the documents before the FBI uh, could could look through them to look for anything that is his that doesn't belong in there or that should be covered under attorney client privilege. Um, which to me kind of sounds like, you know, if the police were to raid my home and take all of the stuff in here that like they're saying that I'm a drug trafficker and they come in and take all the stuff, you know, my files, my receipts, my bookkeeping that shows I was trafficking drugs. And then I said, wait a minute, before you look at any of that, you need to let my buddy Brandon go through it and take out anything that he doesn't think <laughs> belongs in there. I mean, you know, <laughs> my, I mean, I don't know. I guess it is a thing in certain cases. Uh, the DOJ said that his request lacks standing because the records in question didn't belong to him. They belong to the U.S. government. Uh, also, by the time he had made this request for a special master, the FBI filter team, uh, who was tasked with doing basically what he was wanting. You keep saying special master. They had already done it. I want to know if that is a real I, legal term, like guardian ad litem. It sounds, it sounds like, it sounds like it. From what I understood, at, at least the, the context of what I read implies that there are instances where that is a thing. 
I didn't dig too much into okay, it. Okay, yes, it is. A, it is a but, thing. <laughs> I was like, this, this sounds like some top dom S and M something. But okay, no, it is. It is a law thing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, the the FBI was like, I mean, it's a moot point because we've already done it. We already looked at okay. everything. Um, they were a filter team. Uh, a screening team that was, you know, their job was to do what he wanted this special master to do, which was look for things that uh, weren't related to the case or that would file, you know, fall under attorney client privilege. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and a lot of people came out to say that this is Trump didn't actually necessarily want this. It was another attempt to delay things. Um, you know, because that's a big uh, legal oh. strategy. Uh, delay, uh, delay, defect, slow down, distract, kind of try to gum the yeah. works. Yeah. Just- <laughs> so yeah, that's that's where we're at um, now. Uh, this also the whole situation brought up this issue with uh, a Ukrainian woman posing as a Rothschild visiting Mar-a-Lago. And this story is, it's weird because it's related because she was, you know, uh, an imposter and she got to, she got inside of Mar-a-Lago multiple times. It sounds like at least for a little while there, she was kind of a fixture um, at Mar-a-Lago and she met President Trump. She met Lindsey Graham. She met for a former Missouri governor, Eric Greetens. Um, I didn't see any information that, you know, she had that she was spying for a government, uh, at least not yet. There was a, uh, the best source of information for what she's been doing. There's a website uh, or there's an article online that was published by, um, the post gazette um and i'll you know of course we'll have that link and other links related links at the website ciafiles.net but they did a pretty good deep dive into this woman so let's get, let's talk about her um she was a russian this is a russian speaking immigrant from ukraine named inna yashichin i think i'm saying that right her father's a uh, a, a, a Russian-born or Ukrainian-born truck driver who now lives in Illinois sounds like middle-class, you know, uh, blue-collar family. So she lived in Miami, uh, and so she posed as a woman named Anna de Rothschild whenever she mis- visited Mar-a-Lago, starting in May of 2021. So this is after. I wonder, maybe Trump's hold it. Blog. Was this about the same time that the uh, inventing Anna came out? Maybe she copied Anna Sorokin. It it is, and actually, if you start looking for stories about this, they you see them use that in the headline a lot, and um. You know, I've also seen like the real inventing Anna. So I haven't, I haven't watched that documentary, but yeah, people, maybe she saw right it about got, it. Uh, the idea. Yeah. I don't know. I, I remember reading, but, about it, um, uh, I don't know, two or three years ago, and the movie came out not too long ago. 
our series. Was it, it a was movie a or documentary? I'm fictionalized, or... but it's still kind of fun. But yeah. based on depending on who you ask, okay, <laughs> right? Yeah, but yeah. So she had a uh, Florida driver's license and a lot of other official government identifications, including a passport, uh, under that uh, that name, Anna de Rothschild. It listed her address as a thirteen million dollar mansion in Miami Beach, which was obviously wrong. Um, when she was confronted about the false identity uh Yashishin said quote i think there's been some misunderstanding <laughs> <laughs> now and she said that her former business partner is trying to frame her for revenge uh, the partner is a man named valerie tarasenko he's a russian-born businessman uh, he ran a charity uh in canada called United Hearts of Mercy. And five years later, five years after he started that charity, Yashishin, I keep worrying that I'm saying that wrong, but Yashishin uh, became the head of another charity in Florida with the, with the same name. The charity it claims to help pregnant Russians come to America to have their babies in America. <laughs> I don't know if that's a charitable cause exactly, but okay. Well, actually, now that I mention it, um, it may not have even been a charity. It may have been a for-profit business. But the, it certainly has a charity name. It's called the uh, United Hearts of Mercy. So if it's not, if it wasn't a charity, it's sure trying to look like one. I, I like Anchor Baby Express. <laughs> what is that from? I just made it up. Oh, nice. <laughs> Maybe somebody else got it first, but uh, um, oh no! But so, TM trademark. Uh, the United Hearts of Mercy, uh, which is currently under suspicion of being a front organization that funnels money to Russian mobsters, uh, two different payment processors, including Stripe, uh, dropped the organization recently when they detected fraud. Another person who worked at uh, United Hearts of Mercy said that. Shortly after that happened, uh, she started getting lots of calls from people with foreign accents threatening to kill her and her family if they didn't get their money. So United Hearts of huh. Mercy may not be on the up and up. Um, the newspaper who did the article uh, found a list of, the, of email for the people who've donated money. And most of those emails were listed as being from Hong Kong. They they sent an email to uh, maybe all of the emails that they found. They sent a bunch of emails out to these donors asking them, and all of the emails they sent were returned as non-deliverable. So again, things don't look good for this United Hearts of Mercy charity. Um, <laughs> and I, I saw a mention, I can't remember where now, so maybe it's irresponsible of me to mention it, but I saw a mention of, uh, you know, being under suspicion of sex trafficking, human trafficking. Um, so I don't know. There's a lot of room for a lot of shady stuff there when you talk about, uh, you know, bringing women over from one country to to America. There's a word for it, trafficking. Yeah, yeah. So, and that begs the question, you know, what was she doing at Mar-a-Lago if she wasn't there, you know, spying for another government? 
Um, it's hard Hold to it. say. Ah, but oh no, that's where that's where Epstein's people were hanging out. No, no. <laughs> so I think she was working with Trump to investigate Epstein and um and what's her name that just found was found guilty too. I don't. I don't that, think you actually believe that, do you? <laughs> I could. I could. I could imagine that in a parallel universe. Yeah. It seems like from what I read, reading through the article, and like they talked to different people who knew her because she was also using that name, Anna de Rothschild, in a, in a role as a, a music promoter. While she was at Mar-a-Lago, people fawned over her. People loved her because they all believed she was a Rothschild. Uh, and she constantly was talking about real estate deals in and around Miami and Southern Florida. So I kind of think that she was going in there scouting for investors, you know, and by investors, I mean people who would give her money and then probably never hear from her again. Um, oh, she, yeah, she may have been doing the Anna Sorkin, um, which at the same time, I mean, from what I get, that that lady had she gotten the, the loan like she was fraudulent fraudulently applying for, she might have actually made a profitable business and paid it off. This is this who again? <laughs> the the Anna uh, Sorkin, the the one from Inventing Anna that was pretending to be rich and oh, uh, like um, I mean she did she did kite some checks sort of things, but her big thing was trying to get a multi million dollar loan to. You know, start some kind of like art gallery slash club something, and I don't know. I mean, she might have made it work. Right. <laughs> she actually got the money and then paid off. You know, worked to pay off the loan, uh, but it was just she was using fraud to get the loan. And so, who knows? This lady, fake it till you make it. She might have. She, yeah, maybe she was there fishing for investments, and she would have paid them back. Maybe, <laughs> who knows? I, I like to see the best in people. Yeah. Um, and then it said that she was given a uh, basic screening before being allowed. They checked her ID, they checked her for weapons, but they didn't perform any background check, which according to every, like, f apparently that was a bad idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, so we're going to uh, keep an eye out for more because this is a, that's a pretty interesting story there. Um, that's going to be it for this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to check us out. Social media, twitter.com, uh, at CIA Files Podcast, Instagram, at CIA Files, facebook.com slash CIA Files, and of course, our lovely website, ciafiles.net. And uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, take care of yourselves out there. It can get rough. And uh, yeah, later. Bye-bye.